0: Amen. Well, dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, when you're looking for a job, it's important uh, that you look for a job that you are, in fact, qualified for. There's a lot of things that you may uh, want to do in life, and that's good, and it's good to try to do things that you enjoy, but at the end of the day, you've got to be qualified for any job that you apply for, and you can expect... That any employer that would want to hire you is going to ask you to fill out a, a job application and list your qualifications to try to determine, and they'll interview you, right, to to find out if you are in fact qualified uh, for this job. And uh, today, in uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, we we see this. Uh, we see uh, the qualifications that we are that are needed uh, for our mediator. Up until this point in the Catechism. It's been leading us to, this, uh, to these questions. Who then is our mediator who can, who can fully atone for all of our sins and deliver us from the wrath of God that we deserve? And uh, so let's look at the, uh, the Lord's Day 6 now. I'm going to read that. I just realized I did not read that. It was part of the uh, liturgy. And, uh, but let me read that now. And uh, you can find that in the back of the, the songbook. But I'd like to read it before we go on in the the sermon. So if you want to follow along, that's on page 522. Page 522. The Catechism asks here, Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Question 17, why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From where do you know this? From the holy gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. So you can see there, the catechism begins to answer uh, this question. What qualifications do we need then of one who's going to save us from all of our sins? What kind of mediator do we need? And it lists three qualifications there, if you will, that we'll look at this afternoon and why These qualifications in particular are necessary, absolutely necessary, to save us from all of our sins and misery. And uh, so we'll look at that in in order, those three qualifications. Uh, That is that he must be true man, he must be a righteous man, and he must be true God. And then we'll see, fourthly, that uh, the whole Bible points us to Jesus Christ as the one who meets those qualifications perfectly and is our only mediator between God and man. Uh, So, first, the first qualification is that he must be a true man if we're to be saved from our sins. Uh, The Catechism again asks, why? And it answers, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. Right? We... We always need to remember that God is one. He is simple. That means that he is not made up of parts or passions. When we think of his attributes, uh, he's not like a pie with a bunch of slices, and he's got a slice of love and a slice of holiness and a slice of, of faithfulness and, and so forth. No, God is all his attributes, Uh, He is a God of love, and He's a God of justice. And we can't forget that. And so, if He is a just God, He must punish sin. Sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely just and holy God. And so, He can't just, in forgiving us, just sweep our sins under the rug and pretend like they never happened. No, as we heard this morning, as I mentioned, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so he must be just in the way that he forgives us. And so our mediator must be true man. Why? Because it was a man who sinned in the Garden of Eden. Adam, who was our, our federal head, our representative of the entire human race, human nature sinned. It wasn't an animal who was in that covenant of works in the Garden. It was, it was a man. It was Adam. He was our first Adam. And so, and God said, in the day that you eat of it, surely you will die. And so if God is going to be true to his word, if he's going to be just, he must punish sin. And we need one who is true man. It can't be be an animal, a, a, a bull or a goat. If you read the rest of the book of Hebrews, it really shows that, that ultimately that can't atone for our sins. It can't be an angel. It has to be one who is true man. And so we need a mediator who is true man. And The good news is that Jesus Christ is true man. Uh, He is the eternal son of God who added a true human nature in his incarnation. We should always think of the incarnation in terms of addition and not subtraction. He didn't subtract any of his divinity in the incarnation. He added a true human nature, uh, body and soul, like yours and mine forever. Think about that. Today, he still has his human nature, but now glorified. It wasn't like he just put it on for a little while and then was, you know, when he is exalted to the father's right hand, was able to just peel it off and set it aside. No, he continues as true man forever. And we see this throughout the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, says, for as by a man, referring to Adam, our, our covenant representative." Uh, For as by a man came death, by a man, who's that? Our second Adam, Christ. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. It was by a man who came the resurrection of the dead. Or as we read in our our Scripture text, Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, Do You see, the author of Hebrews is impressing upon us that he had to be like us in every way. If he wasn't, then he can't make propitiation for our sins. He can't. And the word propitiation is kind of a big word. We don't typically use that in everyday speech, right? Uh, But that just simply means that he satisfied God's just wrath on the cross and turned it away from us forever. But to do that, he had to be man, true man. And this is true of Jesus. And think about that now for a bit. He went through the through a full term of being in his mother's womb. And his mother gave birth to him just like any other mother. He was swaddled, he nursed, and he napped. And yes, he cried. Sometimes I think some of our Christmas carols sentimentalize it a bit and uh, Speak about, you know, the no crying he makes. No, he cried without any sin. He didn't seem to have a human nature. He truly took on a human nature. And he went through the stages of growing up from, from infancy to being a toddler to being a, a tweenager, if you will, and then a teenager. He went through puberty with all its awkwardness. And then he grew up and, be a, and he was a man. And He continues to have that human nature now glorified. And this was necessary for our salvation. Furthermore, the Bible uh, says that He had a real human body. In Luke 24, verse 39, in His resurrection, uh, He had a resurrected body, a glorified new body. It was the same body, but, but with new properties, new qualities, fit for the glories of the new heavens and new earth. And He says to His disciples, when they, they think He's a ghost, and he says to them, no, see my hands and my feet? Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then I love how he says to them, you got anything to eat? (laughs) And he eats broiled fish. The risen Lord eats broiled fish in his resurrection body. He's not a ghost. He has his bones. He has his flesh and his bones. If you pricked Jesus, he would bleed. If he Slipped on ice, it would hurt. Uh, that's my favorite thing this time of year, slip on some ice. My kids, I mean, I'm just kidding, right? I don't care for that too much, but my kids get a kick out of it. Oh, man. And, uh, but if he slipped on ice, it would hurt. Uh, children, he could, he could truly sing, you know, maybe that song that you learned growing up, uh, head and shoulders, knees and toes, head and shoulders, knees and toes, eyes and ears and mouth and what? Nose, right? He had all the body parts. Of a man, of a boy, and then a man. And uh, the scriptures teach not only did he have a real body, but he had a real human soul or a real human spirit. Uh, John 19, as he's on the cross, he said, It is finished. And it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Uh, the scriptures teach that he experienced ordinary human activities, he got hungry. And 8, according to Matthew 14, he got thirsty in John 19 when he cried out for thirst on the cross. He woke up like you and me every day, likely with morning breath and bedhead. He had to dress himself and bathe himself and go through all the daily rituals like us. He became weary and slept, according to Matthew 8. He experienced anguish in the garden of Gethsemane. He experienced sorrow at Lazarus' tomb, as we heard this morning, and he wept. He experienced all of our human emotions, compassion, anger, fear, joy, thanksgiving, sorrow. And we could go on down the list of all of the human emotions, and he, he evidenced these things not only he evidenced these things in, the, in his actions, but it's not as though he just evidenced these things externally. No, he actually felt them in the depths of his soul. He felt deep down more than we could ever imagine. Compassion, anger, joy, thanksgiving. But without any sin, without any sin, he experienced all these human emotions, in His incarnation, He was made like us in every way except for sin. And, and as the only truly innocent and righteous man to ever walk the face of this earth, He knows what it is to be despised and rejected and scorned and shamed and embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. And no doubt this is all a profound mystery, but we adore the mystery, don't we? come, let us adore Him, the carol says. We adore this mystery of the Incarnation because it means that we indeed have a mediator who is our Savior from all our sins, who is true God and true man and righteous man. And so the first qualification He meets, He's true man. He didn't seem to be a man. He's true man. He added a real human nature. The second qualification we need then to have a mediator to deliver us from our sins and misery is that he must be a righteous man, right? Our catechism asks this question as well. Why does, that, why does he need to have that? Well, because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Uh, you know, you can think of this as, you know, sort of using a metaphor of payment, right? And if somebody is totally bankrupt and has no money, not a, not a dime to their name... He would say penny, but we don't have pennies anymore, do we? I almost said that. Uh, he, didn't have, he didn't have like anything to his name, right? If somebody's totally dirt poor, can they pay off somebody else's debt? No, they can't. They need somebody rich to pay off all their debts. Somebody who's got an abundance of wealth and prosperity. And Christ is the one who is rich in good works and can afford to pay off our debt of sin. In order to save us, he had to be a righteous man. He couldn't be, he couldn't have sin himself. He couldn't have sin himself. And he, he had to live all those years to fulfill all righteousness, you see, right? He, he couldn't just come down and just die immediately. He had to go through all those stages of life and he had to fulfill all righteousness. And that's what he did throughout his whole life. He actively obeyed because God's law requires positive obedience. Not only does it forbid certain things and when those things are crossed, when you transgress God's law, there's a the curse of the law that hangs over us. Not only did he have to avoid all those things, but he also had to positively, positively obey all of God's commandments on our behalf so that we could not only be forgiven of all of our sins and have our slate wiped clean, but also have His righteousness imputed to our account or credited to our account because He is perfectly righteous. As we hear in 1 John 2, He is our advocate. If anyone sins, John says, 1 John 2, we have an advocate before God's throne. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. and He is the propitiation for all of our sins. And so... The author of Hebrews stresses this as well. In in Hebrews 4, he goes on and says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Yet without sin. He's tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Now, he did not have a a sin nature. uh, And so... He did not experience temptation from within, from a sin nature, but he was tempted by the world and the devil more than we would, can, can ever know. He was tempted and tested in the wilderness by the devil. When the devil tempted him as our second Adam and, you know, said, bow down and worship me or, you know, this is this, all these kingdoms of the world could be yours or jump off this building, right? He resisted all the temptations of the devil, quoting God's word, taking up the sword of the spirit and doing battle against the devil and the devil fled from him. And where Adam and Israel failed and where you and I failed, he resisted and he succeeded. But he did feel the temptation all the way to its maximal force because he he didn't lay down and give in like we so easily do. And through all the sufferings and temptations he endured, he remained sinless and righteous, right? When we go through sufferings, we feel especially tempted, don't we? You know, we're tempted to sin even more, I think, when we suffer because, you know, we just kind of give up and we're like, maybe we just need a little pleasure or something, which is a wicked thought, but that's how our, our sin nature justifies things. And he suffered more than any of us, and he resisted all sin. He never once sinned. And so, because... He has no original sin in Adam, and because He has no actual sins Himself, He's able to save us to the uttermost from our sins. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Or 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might Bring us to God. And so Jesus meets the second qualification to be our mediator. He's righteous man. So He is true man and He's righteous man. But we need one more qualification of our mediator, and that is He must be true God. And that's the third qualification. And our catechism asks again, why? And we confess, based on God's Word, He must be true God so that by the power of His divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. It's important to note here that our catechism, uh, when it speaks of his suffering, it speaks of him suffering not in his divine nature, but suffering in his human nature. And that's very intentional. This is carefully Written by our forefathers in the faith. Because you see, the divine nature cannot suffer. The divine nature is unsufferable. One of the attributes of God is impassibility. And so He doesn't suffer in His divine nature. He suffers in His human nature. And so the Catechism says that by the power of His divine nature, He might bear in His human nature the burden of God's wrath. And so he suffers in his human nature and the divine nature sustains him as he suffers God's almighty wrath for all the sins that have ever been committed by his people for whom he died. Think about that. Here is the spotless, innocent lamb of God. And yet in that moment on the cross when he suffers hell in our place, our sins were imputed to his account. And all those for whom He died were credited His account and he was, he was treated on the cross as one who was an adulterer, a murderer, a thief, an idolater, a blasphemer. And we go all down the list of all the, the works of the flesh and sin. And then He suffered the almighty wrath of God when He cried out, My God, My God, oh why... Have you forsaken me? The day of the Lord, the day of vengeance, fell upon Him in that moment when He suffered on the cross for our sake, in our place, what we deserved. Uh, This morning we read from Isaiah 61, and uh, there it it mentions that beautiful comforting passage that uh, it speaks of the day of vengeance. And uh, when Jesus quotes that in Luke 4, Interestingly, he doesn't doesn't mention the day of vengeance when he quotes it. And why is that? Because in his first coming, he didn't come to bring the day of vengeance, but to suffer the day of vengeance for his people. He didn't come to bring the judgment, but to bear the judgment in his first coming, to save us. But he will come again to bring that day of vengeance, to bring that just judgment. But now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to, to turn from your sins and trust in Him alone as your Lord and Savior. And you can be sure that He will save you from all your sins because He is true God. He is, he is true man, He's righteous man, and He's true God. And He had to be true God because we owe God an infinite debt that we cannot pay. We cannot pay it off as finite creatures But because He is infinite according to His divine nature, His sacrifice is of infinite worth. That's why He's able to deliver us from eternity in hell, because He is the second person of the Godhead of infinite dignity and worth. And so He's able then to atone for all of our sins and deliver us from eternity in hell because of his sacrifice. And we see all over the New Testament that Jesus is true God. Uh, One of the easiest ways for me to remember that is uh, for if I want to try to come up with some scripture passages, you know, when perhaps when maybe Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door and they, of course, deny the deity of Christ. And if you're wondering, you know, what scripture should I turn to? Just remember the number one, Uh, because John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1 all mention the deity of Christ. But John 1, for instance, uh, says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god do you hear that the word was in the beginning and he was with god and he was god do you hear that there's this idea of the doctrine of the trinity there he's he's one in essence with the father and the spirit but yet distinct with them And it goes on and says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. When it comes to the creator-creature distinction, He falls on the creator side of that distinction. He is the creator of all things. Nothing was made without Him. He's the Lord of creation. And He reveals Himself as such later in John's Gospel. We see that He's the Lord of the storm when He comes to His disciples walking on water in the middle of a great storm, and they are afraid not so much of the storm, but of the Lord of the storm, who comes to them in glory and light in the midst of the darkness, and says to them, Fear not, I am. And then He takes them uh, safely to dry land, as if parting the sea, commanding the winds and the waves, just as the Lord parted the sea for Israel, He reveals Himself as the great I Am, the Lord of the storm, the Lord of creation, and then you have His I Am statements. If you remember in John's Gospel, all those I Am statements, He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the great I Am of the Old Testament. Revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. He says in John 8, Before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to stone him. Why? Because they thought he's committing blasphemy, claiming to be God. Well, he was claiming to be God, but it wasn't blasphemy because he actually is God. He's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And we could go on in John's Gospel, but just a couple more passages that speak of his deity. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2 says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you see, He is true God. He is true God. As the Christmas carol puts it, Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Hark the herald angels sing, right? But you see, he is perfectly qualified for the job to be our mediator. In fact, he's the only one qualified for that job. And so he's able to redeem us from all of our sins. And so our catechism asks, who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man, and we confess our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And His redemption is is full and free. It's full and free to all who trust in Him, alone for salvation. It doesn't cost us anything. That's the amazing thing. It's it's free to us. It was cost. doesn't mean it didn't cost anything at all, right? It cost the precious blood of the only Son of God. When I was at uh, an undergrad at Moody Bible Institute, and uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but all who go to Moody Bible Institute don't have to pay for tuition um, because generous donors pay for that, and they raise funds in other ways. But they catechized us, as it were, throughout our time there to never say to people that it's free tuition. It's because it's really not free, it's it's paid tuition, they want us to say. In a similar way, we should always think of our salvation like that. It's free to us, but it was costly. It was the precious blood of the only Son of God. But it's 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 free and it's full. As Psalm 130 says, as we sang earlier, oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Or I love how Hebrews 7 puts it, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. You see, He's not a partial Savior. He saves you and me to the uttermost when we call upon Him alone for salvation. And so he's the only one qualified to be our mediator between God and man. He's true God, he's true man, and he's righteous man. And fourth, our catechism highlights the fact that the whole Bible points us to Christ as our only mediator. And again, as I said already, he's the only mediator. And this is what the Bible says as well. 1 Timothy 2 says, "...for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus." Or as Acts 4 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or as Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So the Bible is absolutely clear that he's the only mediator. There's no other way of salvation but through Jesus Christ, but it is full and it is free. And the whole Bible points to him. The whole Bible. So our catechism asks, from where do you know this? Where do you know this good news about this mediator? And we confess the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel tells us. Now this highlights the need for special revelation in the preaching of the Gospel. Right? In the Belgian Confession, we ask, you know, how does God, how do we know God? Well, by two means. Through general revelation and special revelation. Through the world through nature and creation, but also through the book of special revelation. But does, the, does nature declare the gospel to you? No. Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. But it doesn't, the heavens don't declare the gospel to you. This is why it's so important to, to send missionaries into the world. This is why it's so important for us to come to church and hear God's special revelation, to hear the gospel proclaimed, You know, I've had some people tell me when I reach out to them, why don't you come to church? Well, I think I can worship God just fine out on a canoe fishing somewhere, right? He speaks to me in creation and I tell them He does not declare the gospel to you there. You will not hear the gospel there as you're fishing. It's God's word that declares the gospel. And uh, and so we need God's word. And when it comes to the good news about Christ, the gospel, it's all throughout God's word, from Genesis to Revelation, which is what we confess as well here. And we see that, don't we? Uh, And Jesus said in Luke 24 this very thing. Uh, This is, if you remember, after he's risen from the dead and he's on the Emmaus Road and he's talking to those disciples. He goes to the disciples and they don't quite recognize him right away. And what are you guys talking about? Where have you been? Have you not heard about this man, Jesus, who, uh, who died on a cross and we thought he was the Messiah? And uh, he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow to anger, slow, slow of heart, actually. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus himself says the whole testament is about me. And so we confess in question and answer 19 of the catechism, God himself first revealed the gospel in paradise, right? In that first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 that the, there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But ultimately, you know, the, the seed of the serpent's going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but then the seed of the woman's going to crush the serpent's head. That's the first gospel promise. And you can trace that throughout the Bible. We go on to confess. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. And so, There's a lot of stories in the Old Testament, right? And it's possible to know all those stories, but to miss the story of our mediator and our redemption in Him. Uh, Edmund Clowney writes this, There are great stories in the Bible, but it's possible to know Bible stories yet miss the Bible story. The Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story follows the history of Israel, but it does not begin there, nor does it contain what you would expect in a national history. The story of the Bible is real history, wrought in the lives of hundreds and thousands of human beings. In a world where death reigned, they endured, trusting the faithfulness of God's promise. If we forget the storyline of the Old Testament, we will also miss the witness of their faith. That omission cuts the heart out of the Bible. Sunday school stories are then told as tamer versions of the Sunday comics, where Samson substitutes for Superman. David's meeting with Goliath then dissolves into an ancient Hebrew version of Jack the giant killer. No, David is not a brave little boy who isn't afraid of the big bag giant. He is the Lord's anointed. God chose David as a king after his own heart in order to prepare the way for David's great son, our deliverer and champion. And so the whole Bible is pointing us to him ultimately. There's this organic unity, if you will. It's sort of like a, a, from seed to full flower. It's there in the Old Testament, the gospel in Genesis 3.15. And it's like a seed that, that grows and eventually blossoms into full flower in the gospel. And so we should rejoice. We see the beauty of the full flower, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are so privileged to live on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we go to the Old Testament, we read the Bible, we should ultimately be looking for our mediator because it all is pointing to Him. He is the Lord of the covenant and the servant of the covenant. He is true God, and He is true man, and He is righteous man, and He is our only mediator. And we ought to rejoice and celebrate that this Lord's Day and rest in His completed work on our behalf. Amen. And in response, let's sing together. Uh, hymn 79. We'll sing all five stanzas. Let's stand if you are able and sing hymn 79, all five stanzas. We come, O Christ, to you.